0: Today's guest is Associate Professor Justin Keogh. Justin is currently the Associate Dean of Research for the Faculty of Health Science and Medicine at Bond University. Lower limb strength and balance
1: would be the two things that typically underpin the loss of
0: function and the dependency that is associated with some people as they age. In this episode, we focused on psychopenia, a disease characterized by muscle mass, strength and function loss that affects a large percentage of older adults.
1: The big thing I suppose is what ages do these things really become noticeable? And really we start to think of probably into the 50s or 60s as a population level that decline starts to accelerate. How quickly that rate of acceleration occurs really impacts the quality of life in your
0: your latter years. We focused on what psychopenia is, who it affects and what we can do to prevent or reverse it. There's a lot in this episode, quite detailed and heavy at times, but hey, that's the trade-off that you get when you speak with an actual scientist who's deliberate and careful with language, as opposed to an influencer that might be a little more, shall I say, loose. I'll make sure to summarize the key learnings in future episodes. Please enjoy. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health you can do this with your local doctor or you can use a service like inside tracker the nice thing about inside tracker is they make the process super convenient you can organize their phlebotomist a person who draws blood to come to your house or office to do the blood draw a few days later your results show up in the inside tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked InsideTracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link, which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. You dedicate a lot of time to thinking about uh, physical activity and psychopenia in older adults and ways to attenuate psychopenia as someone ages. Psychopenia may be a new term for some. So perhaps from the start here, we we define that as a med- medical term. What does psychopenia mean?
1: Yeah, the term itself has sort of evolved. I first came across it in probably like the mid 90s. Um, and it started to have a bit of um, discussion at that point. And while it's evolved, since then the current definitions have focused on three aspects muscle mass muscle strength and physical performance sometimes referred to as physical function so different groups have come up with different definitions and diagnostic criteria perhaps the biggest in the world is the european working group they've come out for second consensus a few years ago and they look at muscle strength as the first level of diagnosis then muscle mass which is a little bit more difficult to measure precisely Uh, so things like DEXA uh, looking at that muscle mass quantity or quality and then measures of physical performance which are often sit to stand or gait speed um, are typical measures and I forgot sorry for strength the sit to stand can be used but often the hand grip um, is used as the, the simplest form of strength assessment just because of its simplicity and the fact that it does Seem to associate with total body strength well in in many populations.
0: And what is more, I guess, predictive of good long term health or a low risk of falls or, or fracture and mortality is it is it muscle mass, is it strength, or is it physical function or some combination of these?
1: Uh, all three um, have strong relationships with a host of adverse events in older adults. So potentially now more so with the change in definition of the muscle strength that is perhaps focused on a little bit more. So muscle strength obviously underpins human performance to a large extent. And the work we do in athletic populations in strength conditioning, that's the basis for that entire field of improving athletic performance by doing work in the gym, for example. But in saying that, um, if your gait speed in particular or your inability to get out of a chair is present, your life uh is pretty compromised if you can't get out of a chair without assistance or or if it if you can get out and it feels almost like a one repetition maximum squat uh for people at that threshold of strength and function they don't get out of their chair very much and if they walk quite slowly um so there's a sarcopenic threshold of 0.8 meters per second which is around half the sort of speed a typical 20 to 30 year old would just walk around at a a regular pace so as your gait speed gets lower than that it again makes it difficult to mobilize uh, crossing roads with potentially two lanes each way muscle mass underpins all of those things and independently it's really important for things like um, hospitalizations so if you've got cancer or other conditions with associated muscle wasting uh hip fractures the unfortunate statistics where the mortality rates are relatively high for people with hip fractures in extended hospital care. Again, muscle mass and even fat mass is important to, to survive those, um, those contexts. So to say one is more important than the other, um, while research groups do focus potentially in one of those three aspects, my view, they're all interrelated and important, but potentially for a given person,
0: at a given point of time, you could make a case one is a bit more important than the other two. So that's where the diagnostic tests, I guess, on an individual level then inform exercise prescription based on what are the particular stimuli that might, might be most beneficial for an individual?
1: Correct, because I suppose like even if we look at younger adults, you can still see that somewhat of a mismatch between muscle mass, strength and physical function. Um, it's not just the absolutely huge jacked bodybuilder who is best at a whole range of things will necessarily is even the strongest. And we see that in sports like powerlifting or weightlifting, where sometimes the best athletes just don't look as physically impressive, but they've got maybe anthropometric or neurological advantages, technical as well. So, yeah, it's because I suppose the fact that sarcopenia is still a relatively new condition uh, in terms of public and scientific research. Identifying those most important characteristics for different groups or individuals is still very much in its infancy. And sometimes it just gets down to the, the particular person or patient. What do they feel is most important for them?
0: I think that's actually a good way of looking at this. So, if we step into the shoes of someone that's in their 60s or 70s or 80s, what is it that they're looking for? And of the three things you listed, mass, strength, physical function, I have to presume physical function. People want to be able to navigate their environment, sit to stand, walk up and down hills, all of these things confidently and and effectively.
1: Yeah. So that physical function that then impacts their independence and quality of life uh, is probably the biggest driver we see in the literature, but also in the exercise programs I've been involved with here in Australia and in New Zealand, historically, uh, that have long um, engagement for these older adults in exercise programs. So it's asking these individuals in essence, why have you joined this gym or why are you considering exercise? What is the, the things that you want to maintain, or what are you potentially starting to lose the ability to do now? And then the exercise prescription that is developed, particularly after maybe the first eight to 12 weeks, which is quite basic and sort of just introduces them, familiarizes them to a gym, minimizes delayed onset muscle soreness, Example, for examples, but after that sort of first three months, then the prescription becomes a bit more specific to their goals, what they want to improve while also taking into account any um, contraindications they might have with their medical history or or injury history.
0: If we were to maybe take this a a step further and think about physical function, whether it's sit to stand or walking, and think about what contributes to someone's ability to do those successfully, Mm -hmm. how much of that does come down to strength? How much of that does come down to muscle size to balance and coordination confidence
1: that is to a certain extent some of the holy grail of this level of research the biggest challenge is potentially if we think of levels of strength or balance as maybe thresholds of physical function um at those levels of strength might need to be normalized to your body mass in some way as well once someone is reaching those sort of thresholds of that performance, then that might become the biggest driving factor. So if, they, if someone has, in essence, got good balance, has good sensory system, like vision, proprioception, vestibular function, but their lower body strength is poor, then their ability to sit to stand and walk or even stand is going to be compromised. So for that person, um, a lower body resistance intervention would be great. Alternatively, we can also see perhaps the traditional approach of working for older adults as being machine-based to a point in that it's perceived to be safer than free weights or body weight exercises. And I remember reading a meta-analysis years ago, I can't recall the name of the authors or anything, probably 10 years ago, my daughters are now 15 and 12. Um, So it might've been seven or eight years ago. And I read through the meta-analysis and all these resistance training programs had no effect on older adults' balance. I then just read a little bit more detail the actual interventions that were the resistance training. And they were all machine-based. So leg press, leg extension, leg curl, where you're seated. And I asked my daughters who are in primary school all the time, do you think doing strength exercises while seating will improve um, balance of grandma? And they said, no, why would it? They're sitting down. So sometimes it's as simple as that, that our exercise prescriptions, if they're too simplistic um, and they're all seated exercises, we're going to get quite a unidimensional sort of benefit, like strength and some level of muscle mass. So the programs I've been associated with that have done well have integrated balance and resistance training in a progressive fashion. Some programs will have those two arms quite separate others will incorporate what you'd consider a more functional strength and conditioning based progression where things like squats and lunges and deadlifts and cable rotations and step ups, step downs, lunges or even carries like in essence farmers carries and things like that which simulate carrying the groceries in or things in the garden are included in the program so you've got that overload of the muscle and bone with the the loads that are lifted, but also the the balance requirements and the the mobility as well. So, we still don't have clear evidence on how effective those are necessarily to other approaches. But if we think of young adults and strength conditioning, we typically get better results from that approach than just leg press, leg extension, etc.
0: I don't want to skip forward too much here, but it, it it seems relevant is this the challenge with community-based programs and guidelines you're you're going out and giving broad recommendations and then at at an individual level like you just spoke to before it might be that for person a their risk of falls is greatly increased by balance issues Uh, person b it's lower limb strength and and so forth so when you're creating these kind of broad community programs my assumption is that you're going in with a kind of multi-multi multimodal type program that's hopefully catering for everyone?
1: Yeah, that's often the case that many programs are trying to tick off a host of physical and then mobility and social benefits. The question can be, if we look at sort of the guidelines and the evidence of what constitutes a minimum effective dosage, by to some extent, looking to improve lots of things are we diluting the benefit of perhaps the most important characteristics that these programs need to focus on and then identifying which clients will most likely benefit from one program versus another it's probably still most healthcare systems or exercise um, sort of facilities might not quite be at that level as yet So in essence identify what is the optimal
0: or the best options for that person at that point of time do you have a sense though i guess again at a population level not an individual level if you were looking at risk factors for falls fractures premature death is it lower limb strength that most people would need to work on is it balance what do you think would the 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 kind of number one risk factor would be to me i'd probably go to that lower limb strength
1: and balance would be the two things that typically underpin the loss of function and the dependency that is associated with some people as they age. Uh, we've often focused on cardiovascular disease and those sort of metabolic and obesity sort of measures, which are still important, but if we're thinking of physical function, perhaps strength, particularly relative to your body weight and then your balance, I would say based on what I've read and the programs I've been involved with are, are the two key things to include in an exercise prescription.
0: Okay, and so then coming back to sarcopenia, that becomes important with this loss of strength that you're speaking about. What is the, what's the time scale of sarcopenia? When does it typically start? <laughs> that again is a question that is
1: has been examined in quite a bit of the, the studies it's not something that we definitively know but i suppose again if we look at those different aspects the the muscle mass the strength and the function some of those characteristics will probably start declining in people in their 40s and that might again be dependent on their wider health lifestyles their physical activity nutrition etc i'm now approaching uh, 50 that's just a couple of months away i um, still trying to keep strong, uh, do jujitsu and things like that. But yeah, not quite at the peak I was in my thirties in strong man. But the big thing I suppose is what ages do these things really become noticeable? And really we start to think of probably into the fifties or sixties as a population level that decline starts to accelerate. And it's that how quickly that rate of acceleration occurs really impacts the quality of life in your in your latter years so being strong and functional early similar to osteoporosis like we have the public health um, promotion now of increasing bone mass in younger age where you're most um, able to some of the current evidence again is now suggesting that it's it's a great idea to get strong and improve your muscle mass in your teens and your twenties. So the decline actually starts from a higher level of function and muscle mass. So even if you still lose 20 or 30% of what you had as your peak, you're still not approaching that level of disability.
0: Which is akin to saving for your retirement.
1: Exactly. In saying that, if individuals haven't, in essence, banked that muscle mass and strength and and bone mass in their twenties and thirties, we still see lots of literature that even untrained people into their 80s and 90s can still improve their muscle strength appreciably and their function with resistance training particularly if it does have some balance component muscle mass is probably less receptive to change though than those two other factors so muscle strength will improve to the greatest extent particularly in the exercises that you performed Function will improve as well, but not to the same extent, which reflects specificity. And then muscle mass, while it can still improve or at least be maintained compared to the controls who aren't, is much more challenging to change as we age.
0: Would that be the least important, though, of the three? If we were thinking about improving strength, mass, or physical function, would strength and physical function be of most importance anyway?
1: I would agree with that and outside again of that sort of those patient cases in hospital settings where muscle wasting is a potential um, mortality risk I would definitely agree with that that strength and physical performance are the two key factors to maintain with aging
0: yeah I think if anyone was going to push back a little bit there I have heard some people talk about the importance of muscle mass for metabolic health acting Mm -hmm, as a kind of site for glucose disposal Mm -hmm. so it's still it's still obviously important
1: still important that's still and that's been that sort of link i suppose to cardiovascular metabolic health diseases um so it's definitely important but yeah putting me on the spot in terms of function and independence um that strength and physical performance are, are the key measures and i think my sort of take on aging is I still would like to be in my seventies and eighties and still being able to do the activities around the house, go to the gym, um, do stuff with the grandkids, great grandkids, if that would happen. Um, So that's often those sort of motives we hear from these older clients we've had in the programs that the things that they've brought meaning to their life can be like, again, in Australia, Uh, In the time I spent in New Zealand, there's a real culture of men doing it themselves, DIY, fixing things around the house, doing stuff in the shed. So that group in their 70s and 80s now still really a lot of the men's identities around those sort of abilities. So if they lose that strength and physical function or their balance and can't do those things or their healthcare provider thinks it's unsafe for them to continue or perhaps their partner, then you're taking a big part of their life away from them and then that quality of life is is questionable at that point of time and it's often a social interaction with
0: with other people who share similar interests the identity being tied into the physical function that makes sense has anyone looked at at muscle function in centenarian populations you know they don't tend to be big people but i have to imagine that they have pretty decent strength and power for their size
1: there has been a little bit of research. I, I'm not really on top of that end of the um, the, the age group, but uh, Maria Fiatrain Singh, even in the early 90s, um, was doing some research in aged care with mean populations in the mid-90s. And again, demonstrating even back then, big increases in strength and function tests like um, walking ability and so on. So a host of people who were using like a mobility aid like a, a walker were able to transition to walking with a stick. Those who had a walking stick were able to transition to walking without a stick. So so again, even research that's now approaching 30 something years old um, has demonstrated some of those effects. It's probably difficult in many, like the countries I've lived in Australia and New Zealand to get a sufficient cohort of people at that age. But again, some of those areas um, internationally where we have those centarians being more common there would probably be some research into that but i'm not aware there's probably a lot more epidemiology into those sort of individuals regarding what their diet physical activity patterns are and they're often more yeah just things that we would have done prior to gyms being available like being active get your food prepare your food is also somewhat of a labor of love and you're not just um opening the fridge or call an Uber Eats or something to get your next meal. So they were physically active and ate traditionally very much real foods as, as their diets, regardless of the
0: location where they've lived um, across the world. A, a friend of mine describes some of these things that we've done to our environment that make our life easier, fatal conveniences.
1: Ah, agreed. And to a point, even with aged care conferences or things of that nature where I see a lot of the services offered the or prom- the promotional sort of things like your mobility scooters and things like that, they obviously have a place for people. But if you choose to stop walking and then use a mobility scooter, you're basically setting yourself up for that spiral into further dependence. So while at some, there's obviously times where it is important, but once you take that next step into dependency, it's very difficult to then regain function and that spiral often gets more and more dependent. So straddling that risk, I suppose, of continuing to walk where they might be at risk of falls and if they're osteoporotic, obviously that's a that's a big risk, um, particularly if they've got low BMI as well. So yeah, everything that a clinician, a patient and the family have to consider making these choices is is quite complex. And often depends on what you perceive as the most important things and the biggest sort of risks that you might encounter. So, it's almost like a
0: risk-reward ratio that some people might see things at. You mentioned that it's it's a little difficult to know exactly when psychopenia starts, the onset of psychopenia. But typically, sort of 50s, 60s and, and thereafter what do we understand about the rate of muscle mass and strength loss? I've seen a, a whole lot of different numbers through the literature, you know, some suggesting that once you get to that age it might be 1% of muscle mass loss per year and about 3% of muscle strength loss per year. Is that consistent with with what you've seen and is that just indicative of the way we're living versus something we have to accept in a normal part of aging
1: yeah i think those sort of statistics are pretty common to what i've seen one of the challenges still is that often these studies are sort of cross-sectional where we're comparing different age groups at a point of time and then seeing these 70 year olds have less than 60 year olds which is less than 50 year olds having the cohort studies that track people for decades is obviously challenging and cost costly Um, but regardless of that it's definitely some combination of a true aging effect but also the percentage of further physical inactivity, particularly the the progressive resistance. And maybe I'll talk about that with our sort of exercise physical activity guidelines a bit later as well. So yeah, typically as we get hit maybe 40s, how often does a 40-year-old sprint anymore or jump for maximal height or distance or throw a ball for distance? Any of those sort of things that we or land jumping out of a tree or something like that. Things that we did so often in our childhood, but those higher intense activities, it's really those that become less and less frequent as we hit perhaps 40s, even earlier for some people. And therefore we're not really recruiting our type two motor units. Those muscle fibers aren't getting stimulated. And it's those fibers that are most, are the largest muscle fibers. They produce the most strength. In power, they contract faster. Um, so in essence, we are under training those stronger type two muscle fibers. And I think our guidelines to a point, many older adults are still happy to walk, but resistance training still is a hard sell for a host of reasons to get older adults um, and even middle-aged adults to perform at similar levels to those who might meet the guidelines for
0: 150 minutes of walking per week. Yeah, I'm hoping to come to some of those barriers and how we might kind of get a, get around those and, and get more people either meeting guidelines or expand the guidelines to help more people. What I just heard from you there was uh, we should be more playful. We should probably try and keep playing for as, <laughs> as long as possible. And it reminds me of a video. I shared it on Instagram actually yesterday of – this guy playing soccer he was like late 70s or 80s and he he his story they were sharing he plays soccer three or four times a week and running around with these 20 year olds and keeping up with them so um a, a neat a neat reminder to kind of keep playing and maybe even surround ourselves with younger people
1: i completely agree so if i maybe go on to that a little bit um Like in Australia, we've got Exercise and Sports Science Australia. So exercise for general health and prevention or treatment to some extent of chronic diseases, but also the sport applications. What we haven't really done, I think, internationally in Australia is the same. We've sort of forgotten a little bit about the health benefits of sport and play, exactly like you said. So a lot of people think of exercise almost as as a chore, It's something I need to do. It's it's like taking your medicine to an extent. Like I know it's good for me. I know I should do it. But if I've had a hard day at work or an argument with a friend or family member, um, it's much easier to just go home, have a wine and some cheese and crackers or something, watch Netflix to make me feel better. So if we can somehow unpackage exercise as work and a chore and make it more fun, I think many more people will engage. And get the health benefits and one thing i love seeing in australia there's now a host of sports that now have masters sport options um like i played masters australian football after never playing it earlier in my adulthood i'd played league and union but it's quite a different code of football there's walking netball walking soccer there's a lot of different things starting to pop up. And one thing I mentioned to my students is, uh, particularly if you love sport and you've coached sport, is older is al- older adults and middle-aged adults group that you can actually tap into, provide these sporting opportunities in a safe um, way that they're gonna get a host of health benefits. They're gonna get social engagement as well. And we do know that as you get older, particularly once you leave school, your social circle diminishes pretty much every decade. So that can be a big part of aging well that you've got lots of friends and colleagues that you interact with each week, talk about different things, learn stuff. So being able to do that and in a similar way, we've done a really good job with the Paralympics and Special Olympics. We've been able to modify sports for people with physical and um, mental disabilities. I think we now need to look at being that inclusive into middle age and older adults even more so as well.
0: Do you think it's possible if someone stays active playing sport, you know, soccer or tennis, that that type of regular activity is enough to attenuate some of these age-related changes to muscle mass or muscle function, or does there still need to be some dedicated resistance training, you know, mixed into to that person's physical activity? For
1: most people, adding in some progressive resistance would definitely still give additional benefit. How big that is for different people is a little bit unknown. And if we looked at the master sport sort of paradigm, we even did a study probably about seven, eight years ago here on the Gold Coast where they had the Pan Pacific Masters Games. And we ended up uh, recruiting over 150 Masters athletes from their 40s into their 70s. And while the data was self-reported, even the athletes in their 70s, they all reported like one medical condition and one prescribed medication. That was the mean sort of results. So if you were to randomly find a group of 20, 70-year-olds and ask them how many of them have one medication, one chronic disease, there'd probably much be no one in that room who'd say so. So while that doesn't prove that master sports makes you healthy, because it could be the opposite, that healthy older adults can play master sport, it does suggest that being active, playing sport, getting out in the community regularly, and like when we looked at their gait speed, their group strength and their sort of anthropometry, again, they were still pretty much like a bunch of 40-year-olds, even these 60 and 70-year-olds. So how did that and that then gets down into things like The biggest barrier is often time and our guidelines for physical activity or exercise for older adults probably has so many types of exercises included in them like resistance training balance training flexibility cardiovascular training that let's say a relatively inactive older adult might look at all those guidelines and just add up the number of minutes per week and particularly if they're in their middle age like in their 50s or 60s and still working they might look at those guidelines and go How am I supposed to do these three hours of exercise across the week or four or five hours or whatever it's going to be and still do my job, be a family member, et cetera, or the volunteering that they're doing in the community or whatever it is. So there's been a few authors, James Nuzzo actually had a really interesting paper a couple of years ago where he questioned whether flexibility should be retired as an important physical characteristic for most people interesting (laughs) yeah so his point was basically particularly if we look at older adults um what activities do many of them do each day that their range of motion actually limits could make a point that the limit in range of motion probably reflects the inability to produce the the torques at the joints the muscle strength to actually move the limbs um to the end points of range of motion so outside of perhaps something like their hamstring Flexibility, they're not sprinting regularly outside of them having to bend over to touch their toes to put their shoes on or something, which they would do seated almost anyway. Again, that question is if we don't feel that flexibility is that important across the board for function or metabolic, cardiometabolic health, if it's included in the guidelines, is it just detracting from the total number of people who are going to meet the guidelines for the exercise forms that are most effective? So it's a tough question. Because Again, we can definitely find a place where flexibility is going to be important, but how important it is in terms of, I suppose, improving the key aspects for those individuals um, and across the bulk of the community, you could probably make a case that that's if we have strength, balance, cardiovascular, and flexibility, the evidence would say flexibility is typically
0: way down at the bottom, number four, bottom of the pecking order. and you know, Pat, to your point, perhaps time could be better spent elsewhere
1: better spent yes if you're time poor what are the key things that you should do so maybe our guidelines have to be a little bit more i suppose structured in that way like something along the lines of almost like must do could do do if you really want to like maybe a three-tiered approach or something particularly if it sort of stratifies you based on different cardiometabolic or
0: sort of function health risks or things of that nature yeah they could do a pretty simple pyramid that had the kind of level of of importance I imagine back to sarcopenia how common is this how many older adults are likely to to meet the diagnosis of sarcopenia
1: it really depends Um, one of the biggest issues I suppose is the different definitions and diagnostic criteria that have been used across the literature. I'm just referring here to a paper by Yarn and Larson that was published uh, last year in Metabolism. They looked at including our different reviews before. So they've got data from Peter Mann and Rocker. And in essence, the prevalence rates um, in these reviews have been from around 11 to 22% for the populations that they examined uh, for older adults. But one thing they all report is that some of the risk factors for increased prevalence rates like uh, hospitalization. So some populations have been in these studies, again, not necessarily huge samples, but over 50% of individuals will have sarcopenia in different hospitalized groups. So when you look at the aging population, even having just 10% 10% of those over 65 in the community with sarcopenia is still a huge number in many countries that
0: is going to have societal impacts for, for years to come. So age, hospitalization, uh, sedentary lifestyle, these are the big risk factors. What, what other risk factors are there? It really
1: depends. Like, again, with these epidemiology studies, it sort of depends to a point what they've included, Females um, sometimes have been reported to have higher rates. And while we haven't mentioned it per se, there is a condition now also called osteosarcopenia, which is sarcopenia with osteoporosis. And again, being female seems to increase the risk of that, which again would reflect females having a higher prevalence of um, osteoporosis than males do. Malnutrition can be a factor. What else do we have here? Things like reflecting body composition, like anorexia. Those who are obese, uh, there seems to be studies either way, increasing or decreasing the risk. Parkinson's disease has increased the risk. So there's a host of, I suppose, factors, particularly those conditions that will influence it. So basically lifestyle, biomarkers and health status are probably the risk factor categories that they came up with in that paper.
0: Yeah. Friends, you may remember my conversation with Dr. David Spiegel, leading Stanford psychiatrist, who spoke to me about the underrated benefits of hypnotherapy, a clinically backed method supported by over 400 research papers proven to reduce stress and anxiety, help focus and reinforce new habits. David has taken this research and his clinical practice and created a digital experience in an app called Reverie, where you can access all his sessions whenever you need them. People all over the world are now using Reverie to quit smoking, gain control over other addictions, reduce physical pain, feel more relaxed, and improve their mental health. I've been using it to improve my sleep, and I can't recommend it more. The Proof community members can use Reverie for 30 days totally free with a guest pass. Just visit reverie.com forward slash the proof. That's rever dot com forward slash the proof to redeem. And with regards to the gender differences there, um, I'm I'm presuming that that increased risk that we see with females is to do with changes in hormone status, kind of at the around perimenopause, menopause, declining estrogen levels, and how that can affect muscle and bone tissue.
1: Yeah, this, I suppose one thing that we've done poorly in exercise and sports science research is, is gender balance. Particularly in the sports science area, there's so much more on male athletes that we know than females. And probably the area where that has been addressed is things like osteoporosis because of the increased prevalence of females. So again, untangling all those different physiological sex differences to perhaps socio-cultural environmental factors. And another area where this is debated at the moment is sport injuries like ACL and concussions in female football players compared to the male counterparts is it just sex related differences is it differences in the age these the years of experience of the sport before they reach elite um adulthood and also just the general sport science strength conditioning sport medicine and coaching support uh that the females are currently getting compared to their male counterparts so potentially for this there's also maybe that that's still that somewhat more proportions of males performing resistance training in those age groups it's still often a little bit harder to sell resistance training to the older woman than it is to the older man selling it to the older man still isn't an easy message either so what i see in regular gyms now that sex difference in resistance training isn't there as much as it was like what when i was in my 20s or late teens it was often the free weight room, the guys were hanging out in and the cardio machines, the females were. Whereas at our gym at Bond University, we've got eight or nine squat racks and often there's more females squatting and deadlifting than the guys. So I think in in a generation or two, we're not going to have those issues as that cohort of 20-year-olds reach um, older adulthood, but we still have some of those sort of issues at the moment. Similar to how often these individuals will take their GP's word or specialist's gospel. So, we can maybe tap into that in a better way, whereas the average 20-year-old now is, is much more critical in some ways of the advice their, their GP or other health professional give them and will often seek a second opinion, even if that, that is
0: Dr. Google. Is sarcopenia considered a disease like diabetes or, or heart disease?
1: Yeah, so it's now actually, it's a geriatric syndrome that's now um, got an ICD classification. Doctors can now, in essence, put that code to different services that they provide their patients. And um, yeah, so ICDs, the International Classification of Disease, sorry if I wasn't clear. Um, so yeah, just like diabetes or heart disease, it now has sort of treatment options um, sort of attached to it. And our consensus sort of document from the Australian New Zealand Society of Sarcopenia and Frailty Research has a host of sort of suggestions, including for someone who's either been confirmed or suspected of having sarcopenia, like a 30 to 60-minute sort of consult regarding their life, what might be some of the risk factors for their current function, strength and muscle mass, and then appropriate interventions that might then be um, be appropriate, as well as um, sort of annual follow-ups to see um, how that patient's progressing or, or regressing.
0: And in a clinical uh, setting, that confirmation would be done based on what we spoke about earlier, like performance on grip strength or anthro- anthropometric measures, sit to stand. One thing I have actually haven't mentioned too, there's a, a simple
1: screening questionnaire called the SARC-F. It's got five questions about function, falls, etc. So SARC as in S-A-R-C dash F. Sometimes it's also supplemented with a calf circumference measurement. Some studies have indicated that just increases the sort of predictive ability of um, that to some extent in different populations. But regardless of that, um, that's a self-report tool, takes a couple of minutes to use, and it's often, been found to be quite useful as just screening those initial people from there if muscle strength is um low i think it's 25 kilos for men 17 kilos for women in the hand grip then clinically doctor or geriatrician would then treat them for sarcopenia just because getting a DEXA or something is um sort of expensive um and may not necessarily it not suggested to change the treatment approach to any real extent many would probably still get a dexa particularly if the client the patient is at risk of osteoporosis as well or has that sort of condition and then yeah they can definitely test for that level or the severity of the sarcopenia again by a simple um something like a four meter walk test the timed up and go over three meters which again can often be conducted in the clinic so One thing that would be great to see to some extent would be, I don't know, patients often sit around for so long in GP clinics. Could things like the SARC-F or a simple hand grip strength test for any patient over the 65 be sort of routinely done? The question just is the training of the staff to do that well and to ensure it's a maximal effort but perhaps having a small room, one other staff member perhaps dedicated in some capacity, or at least the SACF being done and uploaded to the patient's file, that then might trigger those host of assessments thereafter.
0: Yeah, or even, you know, I know at some shopping centers, there's these kind of body scanners and you step into them. So maybe you could step in and then there's a video guiding you and you squeeze something for your, your hand grip and, and whatnot.
1: That's actually a
0: really good idea. And we see, I suppose, chiropractors or other
1: allied health professionals often have come and get a spinal check and free spinal check and whatever the deal is. Yeah, I think we do need perhaps to be a little bit more innovative, think outside the square. Potentially, though, those older adults going shopping are more likely to be mobile and independent and less likely to test positive. But again, if they've done the test and then they've got friends who are less functional maybe again, it could sort of suggest to them, um, might be useful to get some some assessments and potential treatments,
0: so yeah, cool. Yeah, I, I was thinking about putting that that type of setup in the waiting room, like you said, so kind of bring it to the place where maybe the people who need it most are. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear I now have an excuse to keep track of my calf circumference. Beef. i'm sure it's pretty embarrassing but
1: <laughs> yeah it's interesting um like the classic bodybuilding was the neck the um the bicep and the calf being pretty much the same and while a totally different topic um male professional bodybuilders don't seem to have that balance anymore but that's a different topic um
0: yeah all right gents you heard it here you got to bring those calves up
1: Still important. Like uh, that is one of the driving muscles for for gait. So yeah, important to have um, some um,
0: calf exercises um, in the program for sure. Coming back to I guess the the mechanisms or the physiology that's at play here. If we think about the loss of muscle function um, and and also strength that occurs as someone ages particularly if someone has sarcopenia is it mostly changes to muscle tissue itself is it the nervous system is it vasculature is it the brain uh, peripheral nerves what do you think kind of best explains this change in strength and muscle function that we see yeah
1: there's a lot of factors so if we start i suppose almost from the central nervous system there are changes in different aspects of the brain the spinal cord that um, underpin the sort of the action potentials that are generated and sent to the the agonist the synergist and even the antagonist muscles to make sure there's no coactivation or minimal coactivation where required so a host of those things, and we know there's substantial neuroplasticity that still exists in, in the CNS. I remember reading books 20-something years ago, how that was really novel. Like Shepherd and Carr, these physios from Sydney, had a textbook I, I found on special. and was like, wow, all these neurological disorders can still improve their function through exercise, We're all sort of thought these... Uh, disorders were sort of neurodegenerative and there was no way back. Um, but it's great to see neurophysiotherapy and exercise physiology making some big improvements in their function. So there are a host of things there. There's definitely neural um, adaptations at the, in the peripheral. So we know older adults don't recruit their type 2 mode units as easily as um, younger adults. So it can also be not just the recruitment, but there's a relative lack of them because of that inactivity of the higher sort of intensity activities. We know, in terms of the muscle itself, there's greater infiltration of um, fat into the, the muscle itself. So, those fatty infiltrations are going to reduce the force generating capacity. We have a reduction in um, specific tension, which is the ability of a cross sectional area to reduce force so and we also get a loss of sort of coordinated activity of all these different muscles so if we think of almost anything we do as human, simon it involves a whole host of very precise interactions in time and space between agonists synergists or stabilizers whatever you want to call them and the antagonistic muscles so you can't walk well if your gastroc and your Cilius muscles as an antagonistic pair are both active. Um, so again some of the spasticity disorders we see where we have that co-activation of the joints makes function really difficult, increases energy expenditure etc. So again there's plenty of research at that level that shows that older adults have more co-activation at joints and often in eccentric contractions. So that might mean an older adult walking down stairs, for example, or walking down a hill has less control of their, their limb segments because of that coactivation, maybe greater muscle energy expenditure. And particularly, there is a bit of research I've seen where older adults who go to the gym, they're more at risk of having a fall in that hour or two after their gym session. So particularly if they've done some pretty heavy lower body exercise, like we know Like if you've done a heavy lower body session, your legs just feel like jelly, you don't feel that stable. Um, Walking down a set of stairs can be a challenge. You now add 40 years onto your own body to do that and that risk of falls is now increased. So even things like that, we still need to maybe get the message out that while um, these forms of exercise are beneficial, you are at a slightly greater risk of falls in the couple of hours thereafter. Just like an athlete doing Nordic hamstring curls is doing that to reduce their risk of hamstring injury. If those hamstrings are really fatigued and then they do a soccer or an Australian football training session where they're sprinting, jumping and kicking, you're probably increasing your risk of of injury to some extent in that session straight after. So, how we, I suppose, get that message. And just just to be a little bit careful post-session, probably not a great idea to then go off and do some bushwalk where it's gonna be slippery up and downhill surfaces after a heavy leg training session, as an example. Went off on a tangent a little bit there
0: perhaps, but yeah. How important is this idea of um, the muscle cell type? You mentioned earlier that at least initially most of the muscle fibers that are lost to type two Uh, and just to clarify that are 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 people losing the muscle cells muscle fibers or are they just getting smaller and and is it important that it's mostly type two and how does that inform the exercise that we we want to do to kind of attenuate this
1: i think there's some
0: both loss
1: there's definitely the loss in size but then some might die as well And regardless of that mechanism, it just means if you look at the volume or cross-sectional area of whatever muscle, be it the quadricep, hamstring, whatever, that muscle, the amount of muscle fibers that we have to generate force has been reduced. And the proportion of which is type 2 is smaller as well. So a smaller muscle with less type 2 components is that a substantial reduced ability to produce force, and it is also a substantial reduction in the velocity because the Type 2 motor units muscle fibers um, move faster. So then when we look at the age-related decline in power, which is force by velocity, so ultimately, if you think mathematically, um, a 70-year-old, 80-year-old might have 50% of their peak force, 50% of their peak velocity, When you multiply that together, they've now got 25% of their peak power that they had at a younger age. So some literature is looking at, even though sarcopenia talks about strength, and probably the reason it does is because it's easy to measure, losses in muscle power are even more highly related to function
0: than losses in muscle strength or any other sort of measure that we typically have. Just clarify that again, if someone's hearing you know, this idea of strength and power being different for the first time, what is the distinction?
1: That's a great question. Even our students um, need that reinforced a bit. So strength is the ability to produce force. Um, So in essence, if we think of squeezing a hand grip dynamometer, we're producing 28 kilograms, which is around 270 newtons. So that's the ability to hold an object or overcome an object and move it. So typically when we look at strength sports of powerlifting, squat, bench, and deadlift, they are maximizing their force output to to lift the heaviest loads at a slow velocity. So the greatest forces we produce are eccentrically when we control the weight down, then isometrically where we hold it, and then even less is the concentrical lifting it against gravity. Alternatively, power is the ability to produce force and velocity simultaneously. So power is gonna be more important for someone throwing a javelin, jumping for max height, where there's both a force and a velocity component to it. So even things like getting out of a chair rapidly, walking at a good pace, the correlations in different studies with power measures to those activities seem to be greater than simple strength measures in in older adults. And similar, and this is where I often feel a little bit different in some ways and sometimes when we are researchers sometimes people think you've got to stay very much in your same lane for your entire career so i've got research in older adults fair bit in residential aged care so average age groups of 85 um, and these people aren't unable to do a sit to stand with their hands on their chest at all so unless they can push off the chair which is like a squat dip combination exercise they can't get out of a chair and alternatively, I've also done research in high-level football athletes, powerlifters, strongmen, etc. So often people see these two populations as being completely different, but ultimately the strength athletes, uh, for them to improve, they've got to do so many things right to get better if they're already very strong and powerful. And we know that getting powerful often increases performance more so than just strength per se. So often these same things we see in athletic young pops are the same we see in older POPs, but often those two fields of the end of the different ages of the lifespan, I thought as was completely opposite. And I think some of the guidelines we have or maybe approaches, like we spoke about some barriers before, maybe some approaches that work well in athletes for different reasons, uh, for different physiological outcomes could actually offset some of the barriers to resistance training. Uh, that certain older adult and clinical populations have so I think having a foot in both camps actually adds to my potential um, ability to improve outcomes for the older generations
0: at an exercise level how does this look different if if you're targeting you know purely force or strength versus targeting power as the the kind of outcome of interest?
1: So ultimately, if you're trying to develop power, some of your exercise prescription needs to involve one of two things. One is at least the um, intention to move that weight explosively. So even if you're lifting heavy weights, if your intent is to move those loads quite quickly, as, as fast as you can in that concentric range, the up phase, there is evidence that that will improve power to some extent. However, we also probably need to have some exercises where we are actually moving at a higher velocity than a traditional resistance training exercise. So, um, one thing that was in, incorporated into general football strength and conditioning in the 2000s was the use of bands or chains with traditional resistance training exercises. So, really popularized by Louis Simmons' Westside Barbell training approach. Um, so they called it the dynamic method, where you might select a load of 40 to 60 percent of your one rep max put some bands or chains so again for the older person bands would definitely be the preferred option Um, and they can then express um, that velocity component for maybe sets of three to five um, and become more explosive in their sort of muscle characteristics once they've had a period of say three to six months minimum of regular standard resistance training to build the base just like you would in a regular athlete, you'd have a hypertrophy phase, a strength phase, and then a power phase as a traditional sort of model of um, prescription. So um, even when I was in New Zealand, I left there 12 years ago, there was an awesome program called Never Too Old that the Auckland University of Technology developed. Um, We were a part of there. And um, yeah, they were incorporating those therabands into a host of your traditional barbell exercises for the more advanced um, participants, um, and getting good sort of outcomes with that. So um, there is definitely the potential for that, and there's even some colleagues here in um, on the Gold Coast. Um, they've developed a um, so Professor Belinda Beck from Griffith University has the more trials uh, for osteoporosis. And her training approach there is almost powerlifting with jumping. Um, So there's a squat, a deadlift, um, overhead press, and there is um, jump and landing components in there as well. So these older people are, again, training much more like um, a strength athlete with some jumping and landing and getting some really good function and bone mineral um, density and other bone characteristic benefits as well from an exercise prescription that looks um, potentially dangerous, Uh, but again, under supervision of the exercise physiologist, they're getting um, great outcomes, um, or physiotherapists as well, sorry, getting great outcomes and very low uh, rates of any adverse events.
0: Yeah, that was what I was just thinking there, that the challenging part here is, I think training at kind of high velocity, training for power, development, for the younger person who's confident and has good balance is strong um experienced doesn't have osteoporosis doesn't have osteopenia is kind of a little little more palatable i imagine that there are a lot of people that are tentative towards doing such exercise and and perhaps they've they've even been instructed you know slow and and steady maintain good form, do things very slow and steady. Yeah, we we see that in
1: in every, most gyms, most gym professionals will again say every exercise should be done uh, slow and controlled. I remember back in New Zealand when I was training for Strongman, one of my colleagues was doing power cleans and again, catches the bar on his shoulder, drops it on the ground. This one guy comes over and says to him, if you can't control the weight on the way down, you shouldn't be lifting it. And it's like, <laughs> once you get strong in a power clean, if you're controlling that on the way down, particularly as the shoulder really drops quickly, you can pose a really large risk of injury into the shoulder complex there or the bicep. So every weightlifter, once it's up there, you drop it. That's the sport. So those sort of general messages we have um, that have almost become the Bible of fitness, even just the other day, I was in the gym yesterday, again, one girl saying to her training partner, don't let your knees go past the toes when she was performing a lunch. Um, so again, there's truth to that to a point, particularly if you do have patellofemoral issues, but again, it's a natural movement the human body does. So again, it's that individual, I suppose, application of some sort of concept.
0: What do you think the answer is here at a population level knowing that not not everyone's going to have access to a personal trainer or to a a physiotherapist, um but might not have the experience to perform you know power training and to 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 be able to nail the technique and do it safely i think there's
1: a host of options so one thing i suppose is better understanding the main barriers and then designing programs that match those barriers so Um, Jackson Fife and colleagues had this paper about the minimal sort of dosage of progressive resistance training Um, and compared to our traditional approach where we typically go two, three, maybe four days to the gym each week, 60 minute sessions, eight to 12 reps, two to three sets, which is often still our regular guidelines for every population group or even chronic disease group. Then there's almost like the Mike Mensa um, Nautilus approach, Dorian Yates approach of super high intensity, less frequent training, low volume. But again, that really is going to probably be for the people who already get to the gym, but maybe don't have as much time to stay there. And again, you probably need to have quite a bit of gym experience before you do that approach. So that inactive older adult isn't then going to do high intensity training in their first session, perhaps safely. The third option that they proposed was actually something that we, some occupational therapists have looked into this approach, and there's some reasonable evidence of its effectiveness. They call it exercise snacking. So you can perform resistance training or balance or in combination exercises throughout the day, and you might put little post it notes in different locations, almost like what some physiotherapists would suggest for you to do your rehab stuff. So it might be every time you go into the kitchen, you perform sets of standing calf raises. Um, It could be two legs at a time, or if you're a little bit more functional, perhaps even one leg or two legs up, one leg down um, in progressions. Every time you get out of a chair, you perform maybe a progressive number of sit to stands. So these sort of approaches can be implemented in a way similar to the general physical activity guidelines of perhaps in order to get your 10,000 steps a day, Park your car a little bit further away from the shopping center or your work and walk a couple more minutes. Use the stairs instead of the elevator, those sort of snacking approaches where you're just accumulating some progressive um, activities over the day. So that is definitely an option for some people uh, whereby time and cost is perhaps an issue. Um, Some people at their work desks, um, if you're sort of got a desk job, could even incorporate some of those things in their work days. I typically have a stand-up desk so even standing seems to have some benefits over seating probably not for muscle mass and strength but for cardiometabolic health as well so i think that approach can work one thing i think that covid's actually done well um, for society has been telehealth um, so in australia um, the allied health professionals have now been able to claim um, services through our government-supported health system uh, for for patients and clients um, with telehealth. So as a physiotherapist or exercise physiologist, I think these sort of telehealth exercise classes could be a huge way forward, particularly if it's that sort of snacking approach that might be supplemented by um, small dumbbells or therabands. Um, a therapist could instruct a class of I'm not sure, 10, 20, perhaps slightly bigger potentially, individuals, uh, community-based older adults um, to do things like sit-to-stands, um, lunges, or some level of support initially. And if you can add in dumbbells or therabands, particularly with the lunge-type exercises, do sort of theraband rows, incline push-ups where your hands are higher than your feet, or band presses. So if we look at those basic sort of upper body push, upper body pull, squat pattern, single leg pattern, and sort of a deadlift type pattern, if you've got an exercise that touches those five different sort of movement patterns with some level of progression overload and some balance requirement in there as well, that's gonna be a really nice prescription that people can still perform at home and if they perform that two to three days a week with some relative loading that sort of telehealth approach might get around some of the cost travel barrier type issues that really underpin many of the barriers to exercise or physical activity in general and the additional one we have for resistance training
0: being supervision and safety. Okay I kind of want to clarify something for the the listeners here because there's almost there's almost two questions one one is the question of if if we just had this theoretical scenario where we had 100% adherence compliance what what is the gold standard most effective training program for attenuating age-related muscle loss and, and bone loss versus Pragmatically, you know, I think I'm not sure if we spoke to this, but I think it's like 10, 10 or twenty percent maybe of adults in Australia meet the recommendations for resistance training. And I think you said earlier that time is one of the biggest barriers. So um, the second question is, you know, what's actually generalizable and going to be something that's going to people are going to follow and shift the needle. So if we focus first just here on on if we could if we could lock people up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 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 make sure they did exactly what we we said because there are some people listening that will do that. Mm-hmm. Will um, do that. They're not, yep. not going to be the majority, but what what would that look like? Is that the more traditional resistance training kind of paradigm thinking about? I think so. You know-
1: so yeah, the traditional loading, two maybe three sets maximum, but again, really focusing on those major not necessarily muscle groups, which is more of a bodybuilding focus, but movement patterns. So as I mentioned before, an upper body pull could be a lat pull down. It could be a cable row, a dumbbell row, a pull up or chin up. If they're strong enough, an upper body press is your bench press, shoulder press sort of movements, squat patterns, any sort of sit to stand, the lunge pattern. So one leg in front of the other is really important for balance. If we look at something like a trip related fall, The back leg then has to swing forward rapidly. You have to detect your loss of balance first, swing that leg forward, plant that leg in front of you, produce large forces quickly through that new front leg to stop you falling over. So those different lunge movements can be really good to improve that sort of ability, but also just function in general. And then sort of like your your deadlift type movement where you're basically picking something sort of heavy or awkward off the ground. Add in some sort of trunk rotation component where we're incorporating lower body, upper body, and a trunk movement that might look as something like a hockey shot or a golf swing to some sort of sporting analogy. That in itself is a pretty comprehensive sort of movement and strength prescription that'll also target all of the large major muscle groups in the body. So doing that should also give you a pretty thorough hypertrophy response. And particularly for bone, then adding in some level of impact loading seems to be important as well. So progressively just slightly bigger jumps and landings. Um, again, being really careful of that progression, seeing a physiotherapist or exercise physiologist, perhaps about that initially, but yeah, it'd be great. I think Belinda Beck and a group at Griffith done some amazing work in that area but they're still not really incorporated in exercise prescription guidelines as yet, really. So it'd be nice to see how the average exercise professional can start to incorporate that in a progressive overload fashion. So is it dropping from a five centimeter box landing on the ground or something? They use TheraBands, I think, as well in some ways. But yeah, how we actually would progress that impact loading and what sort of impact difference would a five or a 10 centimeter drop mean in terms of loading at the ankle and the foot up through the comp up through the body because we know those forces will be reduced as we as it goes from the foot up to the spine and ultimately if you want to increase spinal bone mobility bone density sorry that might be a different prescription than we need then for something in the shin or the or the hip to some extent just based on those reduction forces as we go up the chain on landing so that would be the optimal prescription. two or three days a week um, is all that's required. And again, the differences from two to three aren't necessarily huge for many of those outcomes.
0: Okay, so just to summarize, that's what what you've described there of two to three sets per movement pattern. So this would this would kind of be like a, a full body workout yep. circuit that someone would then go and do two or three times a week
1: yep so it could be 10 10 to 15 sort of total sets adding in some impact and balance as well in that program either in that session or another time but again if they're incorporating things like lunges in that resistance training program like again that's challenging the balance like back in never Twelve in new zealand we had this range of individuals who are amazing i've still got some videos of these older clients. You know the big blue um, physio rectangles we have, those foam rectangles might be a couple of meters long, three meters long. Uh, one of these ladies, as an example, is doing walking lunges on that surface. So she did about four, maybe a shorter lady, but did about four or five steps over that distance with really good balance. Other people standing on a BOSU ball, throwing med balls at a little mini tramp. So again, their overall balance and function for these 60 to 70 year old individuals doing that. And then you go to your 20 year old students go, who wants to have a crack at that and see if they can form it as well as this um, older lady. And it's just crickets in the background. No one wants to uh, be shown up by uh, someone 50 years older than them. So the human body is still resilient and can reach those sort of levels. Again, it's pretty, it's not common, but with sufficient dedication to the training, um, those things are still achievable. and one thing we've not touched on actually, I've also done some research in dance. If we think of dance, it's often being an exercise form that many older adults don't see as exercise. It's perhaps where they met their love of their life. It involves balance, flexibility, strength, power, coordination between another person, those perceptual challenges of seeing where people are in space, either avoiding them or coming together at different times. So again you look at some of the cultures where dance is really popular these people as they age are still highly functional and those older adults um, who dance again are amazingly functional independent individuals so even something like having more dance options um, in senior centers or aged care facilities might also be a way forward and again we spoke about fun and play a way where a host of these physical benefits plus the social benefits can be accrued in a more playful fun fashion
0: right more more raging everyone <laughs> uh, yeah <laughs> the the talk of balance you know brings me back my undergrad was physiotherapy and i i remember running through these types of drills with patients and you know uneven surfaces and single leg work mm-hmm. and rem, you know removing vision all these things are really neat to kind of play around with in a safe way. Within this program, do you have any thoughts on tempo, given what we spoke to earlier around velocity and power?
1: Yeah, so particularly with that resistance training in that first three, maybe even up to six months, everything is nice is a controlled tempo. So um two to four sort of second eccentrics concentric's probably the same sort of period. So if you're doing a set of eight repetitions, you're still gonna be up around the 50 seconds of time under tension. Um, so the loads aren't gonna be huge in terms of what they could potentially utilize. But again, that slow movement is gonna increase that time under tension that can be useful, but also just assist with the development of their of their technique. And for them to have it a, basically that proprioception of how their body is moving in space, which then becomes really important for them to train more independently, perhaps with uh, some level of supervision initially. So that's one of the other big challenges, I suppose, is for it to be achievable and adherence in the community, how much supervision is required initially for many older adults before they can train quite independently and confidently on their own. I went through something similar for my 15-year-old daughter, helped train her for about six months. Their gym had a 14-year-old policy, where once they turn 14, they can train on their own if they, the manager feels they're good. Um, so yeah, my daughter Georgia reached that goal and now basically is very independent and wishes to train on her own. For the older person, again, what is that process for them to feel comfortable in that environment, be it at home or in the gym, if they need to offset some of the costs that supervised training would, would obviously have is a challenge that we still don't quite know. And, um, how that might differ for different people
0: so starting at a two to four second concentric uh, which is the phase of the movement where the muscles shortening so if you're doing a bench press it's, it's lifting the weights up and then two or two or four seconds lowering back down then as someone gets confident where are they where are they progressing that to ideally from a, a tempo perspective
1: yeah so probably getting it down to those two seconds in each duration two second eccentric two second concentric but that again is somewhat dependent on the exercise just the distance the the weight would move so if you're a taller individual doing like a close grip lat pull down that bar is going to move a large distance um so even two seconds could be somewhat higher velocity whereas if you're doing like a wrist curl or a barbell shrug or a calf raise where you move a very small distance four seconds would seem like forever. You'd seem like you're barely moving. So you might need to accommodate that to some extent for the different movements. But yeah, two seconds or even a bit less when you start doing that velocity training uh, would be the goal. And around two seconds for each phase, for standard exercises, is probably about that happy medium, which again would be consistent with how younger populations would typically
0: train as well. So that's the gold standard kind of way of of exercising to attenuate some of these age-related changes to muscle and and bone is am i am i correct that that's reflected in the current guidelines that only 10 to 20 or 30 percent of adults actually meet
1: yeah that's pretty consistent they may add in additional exercises but again if we think that time's a big barrier doing things like a bicep curl or a tricep push down isn't really going to give you that much additional benefit if you're already doing your lat pull downs, your rows, your bench or shoulder press anyway. So, really, again, what's, you know, like when you sort of get home late at night, you flick on the TV, you got those um, infomercials, like the five minute ab routine. In essence, most people want that. It's like, what is the minimal training dosage to give me the effect I require? And I think in terms of the guidelines we put together, across every country for different conditions and age groups, we've probably not done enough research into what is that minimal dosage that gives that level of outcome. And we know of all our dose response studies that more training volume or duration often gives a better result, but that double of training time might only increase, like it's only a small additional benefit so what is that sort of rate? what what is that point most people get the biggest bang from because if we can sell twice a week or even once a week but if once a week had to be done at high intensity to still get a result and some good studies say we can still get a lot stronger with one intense session per week particularly for people who aren't that strong to begin with that sort of message could have a huge change to the number of people doing that one session per week and for an older person if they're happy to go and exercise hard for that 30 to 45 minute session maybe 60 minutes max once a week the benefits they're going to get from that compared to no resistance training are going to be
0: profound yeah we didn't speak much about the intensity there so in that gold standard program for the two to three sets per movement pattern what would you like someone to think about with regards to the load that they're choosing and the number of reps they're doing yeah so ultimately
1: if you're trying to get somewhere in the 8 to 12 repetition range which seems a range many people are happy to train in younger and older uh, for those who do train probably for the older adult initially or, or athletes do as well there's something called repetitions in reserve rir so all that means is if someone put a gun to your head and said give me an extra two or three repetitions could you actually do it if you had to so if there was like one rep in reserve that means i stopped the set it was really difficult but if i really had to i could have just pushed out one more repetition if it was five reps in reserve obviously the set finished at a much easier level and i could have done another five reps in addition to those that i did so with older adults initially starting you might have something like at least those five reps in reserve So they're getting used to a movement for eight reps, but if they really wanted to, they could complete maybe 13 or 14. In essence, this makes it a little bit less challenging, a little bit less stressful. They don't get the delayed onset muscle soreness in the subsequent days. They can concentrate more on the technique of learning the movement rather than this weight feels so heavy. I've just got to get it off my chest or whatever it is. So they develop better technique. And gradually as they continue to train, those repetitions in reserve become smaller. So then for someone who's been training for maybe six months, many of those exercises, you might sort of terminate at somewhere around two reps in reserve each set, something along that line. And as they continue to then increase the loads from there or reps of a given load, that's where the progressive overload comes in. So even young adults um, or athletes don't train to failure all the time if they're doing multiple sets and sessions. So that is sort of what The guidelines would probably suggest if you're to do one session per week, though, you'd have to reduce those reps in reserve. You'd have to get closer to zero or one reps in reserve. So every set becomes harder, but you are doing less sets in total.
0: Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so intensity has to go up if the frequency of that workout is going down. Um, okay, so how how would this style program compare to exercise snacking. So I think before you mentioned Jackson Fife's paper and you spoke about this idea of, well, there's a lot of people that aren't doing resistance training for whatever reason, they don't enjoy it, it's really hard. Rather than them doing nothing and being completely sedentary, perhaps there's another option that gets them engaged there's less of a barrier and still has some benefit. But if we think about the magnitude of effect and you compare the program that you just outlined there as gold standard versus this kind of exercise snacking approach where people are you know, spending five, 10 minutes here or there, maybe even a couple times a day doing body weight or resistance band exercises. They're taking the stairs. They're parking further away from the entrance to the shopping center. What's the difference between in in terms of their ability to attenuate or help fight off sarcopenia?
1: Yeah, at this point of time, there probably haven't been anywhere near enough studies that have directly compared those in the same study. So, when we want to see the relative effect of different interventions, it's best to do them in the same study so that um, any differences in the type of the population or whatever are controlled for. So, we don't have clear evidence on that, but as a a general sort of estimate, the benefits would definitely be less in terms of our, our typical strength measures, our muscle mass measures. In terms of function, there can still definitely be functional improvements, particularly if those snacking exercises are more functionally based. So one of the great things of occupational therapy, they really listen to their clients regarding what brings meaning to their life. So the exercise prescriptions often included by the OTs. In these snacking sort of designs are simulating those sort of movements that are important for those older people again it sort of depends on what is the outcome we're measuring and what level of function these individuals have at baseline so for someone who's quite poorly functional even doing like sit-to-stands five days a week and accumulating an extra five sit-to-stands a day that might be a sufficient training overload to increase their total leg strength to a similar extent than what you'd get in a gym because their level of baseline function was so low. And when we did studies in aged care, like um, had a PhD student, Samantha Fien, she's now at Central Queensland Union Mackay, her intervention at a local aged care facilities, all her equipment was was a couple of dumbbells up to three kilos and some therabands and some sort of soccer balls, like um, light balls. And these individuals increased their sit to stand with their hands on their chest from zero at baseline to an average of about seven with 12 weeks of training, two sessions a week. Uh, improved their gait speed by about, I think it was about 12 centimeters per second, which doesn't sound like much, but again, is, is quite substantial when their gait speed was around 0.5 meters, 0.6 meters per second. So it was about a 20% increase in their gait speed. These sort of programs that are sort of, home-based not really utilizing a gym equipment but can be done very much in that snacking approach or for a couple supervised sessions if they need to can still really improve function but definitely won't increase muscle mass to the same extent so if muscle mass is really still important measure the resistance training in a gym is definitely the gold standard perhaps supplemented with dietary um, interventions as well depending on their their diet and digestion. So yeah, that question you do raise is something that exercise science has always grappled with in terms of what is the best exercise, but only a very small proportion of a population might do it compared to what is the most commonly used exercise. How beneficial is
0: that? And then trying to strike that balance. Yeah, the point that you made there about the baseline health baseline function seems critical here and um you know i have to wonder i i presume the guidelines speak to this to some degree but you know in in reality it would be nice if there was some types of baseline testing which then based on the results that someone gets there it suggests okay well this is the the best type of resistance training perhaps for that person to kind of shift the needle and the exercise snacking that we're talking about here is that what you would recommend uh for let's say someone's listening and their parent or their grandparent is 80 or 85 in an aged care facility they they're they're going to struggle to, let's say, get them into the gym on on the leg press. Is this where you would suggest they begin with a a more of an exercise snacking approach?
1: For sure. So particularly if you've got that parent, grandparent that you might visit once or twice a week or something, um, you could potentially incorporate that into your visits with them. And instead of just being there watching them do it, If you actually did the exercises at the same time, I think that'll also go a long way to your loved one doing it as well. Um, And every rep that you'd perform would also be that extra sort of demonstration that they'll visually observe, and then that'll improve their their technique and confidence as well. So if you then go back into the community and you've got a, a loved one who's perhaps in their 60s, but can do 10 sit to stands in a row, can do calf raises perhaps even single leg calf raises you know this person is still very functional that that snacking approach might be sufficient for them to maintain a high level of function they're already very they're they're already functional this might be sufficient for them to maintain high levels of function throughout the rest of their life whereas for that person who's really really poor Snacking can still be challenging because even though we don't overload that functional person because most things are body weight, body weight can be too much for some individuals. So that's where sometimes a machine can be great where you could give an older person who's got really poor leg strength a five kilo or an empty leg press. Um, Like a pin loaded leg press of five kilos might be something they could do, but sit to stand is, is beyond them at that point of time
0: whether you go down the exercise snacking route or the more traditional kind of resistance training route how important is progressive overload that is one of
1: the keys at least to a certain point point. and i even saw something on facebook about this on twitter the other day this question should 50 year olds still pr their exercises their personal records um this guy was doing um sets of five deadlifts so that was a a cool thing to sort of just again get that question out there but ultimately each person's probably got their own sort of level where they're happy to reach i think that progressive overload is definitely important um to some level and i've i'm driven to to improve and and reach goals in saying that i understand i'm not going to be i can't do some exercises i did when i was younger um, some injuries i've accumulated But I have put out some interesting goals uh, for April when I turned 50. Some of those 50 reps at certain exercises in minimum time sort of things. But there's definitely the point at which there might not necessarily be that much more benefits to go past a certain level. It's almost like that question, how strong is strong enough in any sport athlete? So realistically, um, if we can think of an older adult, if they can do 10 sit to stands, Like in less than 60 seconds, as I'm just throwing out ballpark numbers here as an example. An older adult who can do that with their hands on their chest is pretty functional. If they can um, climb up stairs, um, multiple flights of stairs without getting out of breath or look like falling, they're still pretty functional. So to some extent, putting those into then more rigorous tests, what would those cutoffs be of sufficient function versus the disability level sort of thresholds, We've got those thresholds which indicate sarcopenia, but perhaps what those high levels would be that then indicate high levels of function, we don't necessarily have those levels well-defined. But ultimately, if we go back to the person, their lifestyle, and what brings meaning to their life, if a 75-year-old person trains for six months and they're now playing lawn bowls or golf again, which they had to give up, say, five years ago because they weren't able to do it, and they feel safe and and happy doing that whatever they're doing there might be that level that they just need to maintain for the rest of their life so going beyond that may not add any extra benefits to the activities they want to do but it might still create that little bit extra sort of um strength or function reserve that if they do start declining as a consequence of maybe a, a fall related injury or something that when they've recovered from that injury, they're still at that same level of
0: function that they were before in some way. What do you think about some of the observational data, um, I'm sure you've seen this, that suggests that at a certain point, resistance training could be deleterious? Is that just an artifact of, of data and some, I guess, uh, some limitations of the data in terms of of enough people that are training at Really high volumes, um, or is there a point where it's not only diminishing returns but resistance training could be detrimental to someone's health?
1: If we think of younger pops, there's been a host of strength bodybuilding athletes drop off in their 30s and 40s over the last 20 years, and the debates there of what causes that. Is it just um, the size of the individual, the um, performance enhancing drugs or what combination plus predisposing genetics is always there. Some epidemiology research is now demonstrating mortality benefits with resistance training. So that would go against that sort of argument. But again, it's as you said, it's really hard to tease out some of these interrelated factors in an epidemiology studies. So I think ultimately, The best answer there would again be if we start thinking again of almost like athletes where every all their physical fitness performance tests, you're then sort of ranked in a percentile compared to your peer. So if you're an athlete that's in the 90th percentile for strength and power and body composition, there's only 10% better than you at those characteristics. But if you're in the 30th percentile for your aerobic or speed characteristics, it's like, all right get out of the gym, we need to start doing some more running and increase your aerobic capacity. So to some extent, being able to, like when we do assessments on older adults or anyone in particular, they always ask, oh, how does, where do I rank on this score? Like you give them a number, but what does that number mean? Am I good? Am I average? Am I poor? So to an extent, some of those sort of things might be useful because again, if someone is doing Just looking at a sarcopenia screen scores for example so if they're if they're good on all those sarcopenic screen scores but they have poor aerobic endurance their body fats elevated triglycerides or whatever the cardiovascular risk factors that person obviously needs a lot more of the aerobic type interventions to offset that probably some dietary sort of assistance as well and whatever they've done for strength and so on perhaps reduce some of that volume and intensity to maintain those functions but add a little bit to supplement where they're missing and the flip side for someone who's got great cardiovascular health we see a lot of older um, individuals that might still be like lean and everything don't have any of those risk factors for cardiovascular disease but they're so lean there's no muscle mass on their body either so their bmi is now perhaps 18 or something and we know at those levels, anyone who has a fall-related fracture or things like that, any additional muscle wasting is is really a poor outcome because they just don't have any muscle or fat to really to lose at that point with, with extended bed rest. So again, to a point, what, is, what are the characteristics for a person and then what is the most appropriate exercise prescription at that point of time? Similar to what a GP would tend to do with pharmacological prescriptions as well
0: right and there's some parallels with nutrition here around the importance of diversity i guess when it comes to exercise and different types of of exercise acting as a different stimulus for different systems of the body and as you say some some people may need more focus on a particular system compared to the next person um on aerobic training Does this type of exercise influence sarcopenia risk or outcomes for people with sarcopenia?
1: There hasn't been as much research looking into aerobic and sarcopenia, which again, really reflects what sarcopenia is, that muscle strength and muscle mass characteristics. In saying that, there still would be some potential for improvement in some of these outcomes but that level of effect is definitely going to be less than the progressive resistance training um, approach. If the only type of exercise someone would do would be aerobic, aerobic versus no exercise, doing aerobic would be better than doing none. But if they could have a choice of resistance or aerobic, the resistance would be the best option um, to put most of your eggs in that one basket each week.
0: What about yoga and pilates you know i've been doing a a few yoga and pilates classes lately that are Mm -hmm. pretty demanding or i find them them demanding because i haven't done them (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. a lot previously and there is a lot of i guess time under tension so i have to imagine that these modalities um, could lead to pretty decent strength on a sort of pound for pound basis and they they definitely seem like they would be good for muscular endurance and stability but what are your thoughts i guess as to the effectiveness of of yoga pilates for you know fighting off sarcopenia i haven't come across as much studies in the sarcopenia
1: field but um There has been quite a bit of work in those sort of topics with things such as lower back pain, chronic sort of low back pain, and they can be quite effective in terms of sort of function, pain, and to some extent strength in those sort of conditions. So there's definitely potential for those to act as a progressive resistance intervention, particularly for the less active older adult. They're also good for balance in some ways, but not necessarily a walking related balance. So things like getting off the ground, if you do ever fall or you've got to get down to the ground and get up, they'd be really quite useful for. And the question, though, is, I suppose, what is that level that they might reach? So, again, progressive resistance training has greater progressions. Uh, and one other thing can be, like any other exercise, how we might modify some of those poses and the progressions to get to those poses in an older adult group. We may have reduced um, range of motion and particularly reduced strength and stability at those sort of range of motion endpoints so that it can be done in a safe and effective fashion. So like we spoke about modified sport for older adults, what are those um, modifications to yoga or Pilates that would be appropriate so that these individuals can become confident in their initial sessions, not get too much delayed onset muscle soreness, and reduce the risk of any sort of injuries or niggles that might actually happen from those movements. So those same principles would be the same for resistance training, dance, or whatever the exercise mode would be.
0: What about aerobic exercise where there is a, or can be a fair degree of resistance, like swimming or stationary cycling on a, on a bike with the, with the tension up? I think there's probably a number of people listening who maybe have joint pain that they tend to get with weight-bearing exercise. Is it, is it possible to increase strength and muscle mass function with modalities like swimming and stationary cycling?
1: There's definitely the potential to increase um, function, strength, and muscle mass to some extent. Muscle mass still perhaps a little bit less though so than the other two variables, but um, swimming... As we know, particularly those of us like myself who don't swim well, um, those muscle groups do fatigue relatively quickly, so it is loading those muscles because we're, we're not great swimmers. So yeah, those aquatic exercises for the upper body for sure, and lower body to some extent a little bit more so with breaststroke. We do know however that that bone response to aquatic exercise isn't the same as, as terrestrial or land-based exercise. So If you've got osteoporosis and you're doing most of your stuff in the pool, you still need some impact loading and perhaps jumping and landing in a pool is a nice way to to start with that as well. Where if it's like waist to chest high, those impact forces are going to be substantially reduced anyway. Water is also great for balance. It's really hard to fall over and have an accident inside a pool. Obviously getting in and out of the pool is where there's a little bit more risk. So those can definitely be useful. Cycling, again, many people enjoy and perhaps for the older adult, the cycle, stationary cycle that little bit safer so they're not going to have a roadside accident. Increasing the gearing or doing interval training on the bike is definitely a way to stimulate those type 2 motor units, which are increasingly um, important as we get older. So that might mean going 10, 20, 30 seconds at a higher intensity and then a similar period or longer of lower intensity. Um, so that alternation of high and lower intensity is a definite way forward. Some great cardiometabolic effects um, have been demonstrated of HIIT training as well. And then if you look at other modes of aerobic exercise, again, are there ways that we can increase the intensity of some aspect of that, um, either by loading or that high intensity versus lower intensity sort of intervals? So a rowing machine, a stair stepper can be pretty intense on the quads as well. If they're in the gym, walking, if they're walking, is there hills and stairs around their community that they can access more? And even doing stairs, some, if you take one stair at a time, that's quite different to two stairs at a time. So the gluteal quadricep activation from two steps at a time is substantially increased Uh, from one step at a time. So things like that can also give you quite a bang for your buck in terms of altering, modifying those um, aerobic activities.
0: The mind wants to take the path of least resistance. Yes. We have to to constantly fight that. Uh, There's probably a number of people listening who are doing a mixture or aspire to do a mixture of resistance training and aerobic training. And are thinking what's the best way of spacing this out within a kind of weekly schedule to get the best adaptations to allow the body to recover do you have any particular views or strong views i should say about whether aerobic training should be done on the same day as resistance training before or after should it be on separate days or are we getting into the weeds and it really is you know most <laughs> important just to get it done? <laughs> yeah,
1: that's um, a really great question. And that's the whole field of what's called concurrent training. So, interesting, when I started my honours in 96, that was really common in the sport exercise science literature. So many people were investing in that. And then for about 15, 20 years, it just fell off the research landscape almost. Um, now it's it seems to be popular again, I think, particularly with team sport athletes where... They run around a the field, there's lots of aerobic and sprinting activity, but they still need to be strong and powerful with that aerobic base as well. So that's reignited that question. There's still plenty to look into because some of the adaptations are somewhat opposite in terms of the metabolic and the um, muscle sort of morphology responses. Probably the biggest take-home message is, whatever is your most crucial physical characteristic you want to improve, you need to do that when you're fresh. If you were gonna go to the gym and you wanted to combine resistance and um, cardiovascular exercise, if the resistance training is your focus, you should do that at the start of the session when you're fresh, and then finish with the cardiovascular training towards the end of the session. The balance training, again, can be included at any points potentially but again if you did balance training after all of that it would actually be really hard to balance well so that could be a way to progressively challenge your balance by doing it in a state where you are fatigued but potentially the balance stuff could be done initially at the start of the program when someone is fresh and that in itself could act as somewhat of a warm-up for the resistance training and then if you're going to do cardio at the end or if you're going to do it on different days you might alternate um, something like a Monday Thursday strength training, and then walking three other days a week, or something like that around it, or
0: or think or swimming or other sort of cardio options that you prefer. And if someone is feeling sore the next day after a a resistance training workout, is it is it okay for them to train again? And do you have any tips for speeding up recovery or ways that they can reduce muscle soreness?
1: The best way to reduce delayed onset muscle soreness is to just get a few more sessions in under your belt of that stimulus. So even if you're really sore the first session, if you then do that session again another three days later um, at the same level of intensity, you'll be a lot less sore the next time. So the body actually adapts quite quickly to that same stimulus. But beyond that, um, there's a whole host of different things suggested to improve recovery and performance. Personally, I've got into some cold water immersion late last year, listened to some good stuff there. I think might have even been on, on the proof as well. I think one of those um, presentations was on your podcast. Uh, read a book. Um, so that seems to have some good science behind it. Just jumping in my pool during the sort of end of winter on the Gold Coast was felt cold enough. Um, most friends don't want to join me, almost no one. Nothing like the Scandinavian's um, midwinter morning swims though. In essence, yeah, if you're feeling a little bit stiff the next day, just getting out there moving. Um, so again, going for a walk, a light swim, or just getting around the pool, any of those things are often quite useful to just um, loosen up the body. So. But yeah once your body gets used to a session a type of exercise into a couple sessions really that delayed onset muscle soreness can be quite mild if it occurs and there's still no necessarily high correlation between that and actual gains in in muscle response there hasn't been any definitive evidence that you need to get doms regularly to
0: actually get a improved muscle function so what's the best indicator of doing a good job in your workout and working out at, at an intensity that will cause the body to adapt. Yeah, I think the
1: big thing is as you become more experienced, you then start to have a better understanding that repetitions in reserve. So again, how close I am to that muscle failure temporarily occurring. So realistically, if most of your sets as you become experienced are in that sort of 2 to 3 reps in reserve, if you've um had to concentrate on those exercises perform them particularly things like your lunges and so on even younger adults we have to i'm middle-aged now you got to concentrate when you're performing a lunge to balance well and so on whereas if you're in a leg extension machine how many 20 year olds do you see on their phone or device when they're doing an exercise like that or whatever it is so posting a selfie or something so if you're concentrating, if you've got that sort of physical response, you've got the, the cheeks, you've got the sweat happening, which you don't always get in some gyms because the aircon's so cool, but ultimately you feel you've got that sort of euphoria that you've achieved something in that session. And one thing that I don't know if I answered really well before with progressive overload. One challenge to achieve that is to take some records of your training sessions. Ever since I started powerlifting in like 96, when I started that, I was meticulous ever since that um, age, I think of having a training diary. When I go into the training, uh, into the gym, say when I was in there on Monday this week, I look back at what my Monday was the week before and then had goals of how I'm going to improve. Even if it's one extra rep across one set, of a certain exercise, that then is an improvement from the last session. So, having those sort of session or weekly goals, or whatever it is that you're going to work for in that next two month cycle, might be for an older person they can do perhaps five knee push-ups at this point of time. They but are unable to do a, a full push-up on their on their feet. If they could increase their knee push-ups to ten over that next two months they then should be in a position where they could do like a full push-up. And again, for a 60-year-old person perhaps to be able to demonstrate they can now do a full push-up on the floor, like that would have to be a really cool um, sort of demonstration that what they've been doing over these last number of months has actually made a huge difference to their function because what percentage of 60-year-old individuals would be able to do a full push-up?
0: Yeah, something that I'm pretty rare. Right. Wet line a chin up. <laughs> I I like that though, taking taking a, a pause to understand where you're at today. So your your mm-hmm. baseline measurements. And then once you measure measure something, you can work towards optimizing it. And a lot of the a lot of the time I get questions from people <laughs> when they hear things like this and um, I understand why, but they they might they might think, why do, why do we have to give so much time and attention to these sorts of things? If you, if you look at regions of the world where people are living you know, really healthy, long lives, they're not going to the gym, they're not writing down their lifts and do, taking all these measurements, but that we have to come back to the fact that we live in a very different environment. And our environment is in many ways set up for us to be sedentary. And so we, need, Very much so, we need a little more intentionality to kind of uh, age healthily despite the environment. Um, how important is hormone status here to in, in this discussion of building, maintaining muscle uh, strength and function as we age? You know, a number of questions got sent to me when I, I put up a post saying I was doing an episode on psychopenia. A number of people were interested in you know, the changes that occur at a hormone level as someone ages and how this may affect their ability to actually build muscle and strength with the resistance training that they're doing.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And we, I suppose particularly for middle-aged men, we're now seeing a massive increase in the number of men looking at testosterone replacement therapy. Um, A host of strength athletes and actors in their 40s and 50s are now sort of um, big uh, proponents of it. So there's definitely some case for things like particularly in the male the reduction in testosterone levels as we age and perhaps some of the receptors potentially becoming less sensitive to the circulating testosterone as well i'm not as aware of how that works in older females but there was a really interesting paper that came out this year from a um from cats katoka in sport medicine looking at the plateau and muscle growth with resistance training exploration of potential or possible mechanisms so there definitely seems to be a host of things that the hormonal system are involved with that um, reflect anabolic activities that are down regulated and a host of catabolic processes that are are in so where in essence that hormonal component is influenced or influences things Um, So, if we think of things like the amino acids like leucine as an important stimulus of lots of things, we think of the mechanical stress that exercise like progressive resistance training comprises, then you've got your different growth factors, be it insulin, growth factor one, testosterone growth hormone, et cetera, that are important, um, that then influence that whole cascade of protein synthesis and degradation and all the different molecules that have varying roles And when you look at some of those studies you look at the flow chart of all those interactions it's super complicated so the researchers doing some work into those areas um are doing some amazing stuff it's never been something i've gone into specifically but the complexity in all those sort of interactions of diet exercise the growth factors and then all those genetic aspects that stimulate um synthesis or degradation and the relative interaction of those effects is still super complex and something we're just really scraping the surface of at the moment. So some really good research happening and talking to some of those experts would be really interesting to get an idea from their expertise where they see perhaps the most important factors being and having a better understanding of that do we then have the capacity to have more effective hormonal treatments as we age because what ultimately is the most effective dosage for trt for a 40 or 50 year old man we really don't know that also what are then the potential risks of those therapies and what is that balance to strike we know prostate cancer is related to testosterone progression so If we see a big increase in 40 to 50-year-old men um, taking TRT, are we going to see something in the next 20 years of an increase in prostate cancer as just a potential? Like, I'm not sure at all if there will be any association, but men with prostate cancer get androgen deprivation therapy, which stops their testosterone production pretty much in its tracks to reduce the progression of their cancer. So if their testosterone is elevated in those middle to, um, younger, early adult years, are they potentially at increased risk of prostate cancer development? I'm not quite sure. So, and then even understanding these different interactions, can we then come up with alternative exercise approaches or dietary approaches that will better improve these outcomes for older adults? Um, it's great to see some changes in the sort of dietary recommendations for older people. So, A lot of associations are now suggesting between one to 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass per day. So for older people to maintain their muscle mass or to increase it. So. That's substantially more than what some recommendations were just 10 years ago and some also some evidence to suggest that some relative equal spacing of those protein dosages is important as well so not just to have a dinner of like 300 grams of rump steak to get your daily protein requirement like spreading that more equally across the day is important as well
0: on the the topic of sex hormones with with the differences in in sex hormones between men and women and perhaps even muscle physiology are are men and women equally able to build strength and muscle tissue with resistance training
1: yeah that's a great question so i was involved in a meta-analysis a few years ago um some sydney colleagues jones was the first author so what they, what we demonstrated in this meta-analysis was it sort of depends on how we express um, strength and muscle mass sort of outcomes. In essence, what the meta-analysis found was that when we express some of these measures in relative terms, that the females actually might get a bigger change. And that might reflect the fact that they often started at lower absolute levels. So what we found was females gained more relative lower body strength than men so when we when it was expressed per kilogram of body weight the females had a bigger change in lower body strength or relative muscle size so again expressing a change in their muscle mass relative to their baseline levels men gained more absolute upper body and lower body strength and also muscle mass size so If we're talking kilograms and strength or muscle mass, men will get a bigger response um, for the older men, but the relative change in upper body strength or muscle mass size, uh, sorry, lower body strength. um, Lower body strength relative was bigger for females than men. There was no difference in sex between relative upper body or relative muscle size. So if we're expressing those things relative to your initial starting point, men and women have that same percentage change. Um, so the bigger change for men often just depicts the fact that they might be 20 or 30 kilos heavier and stronger with more muscle mass to start with
0: and what about the actual design of the training program for men and women i've heard some people i think mostly in fitness circles kind of suggests that maybe women can handle more volume they can recover quicker is there any is there any truth to that and should men and women be following the same sort of set of principles
1: in essence the sexes are often pretty similar but there are some little differences so and there is some evidence to suggest that females may recover better and some of their hormones may also reflect that as well but again it's a little bit outside of my expertise so What was found um, from some, I think it was a meta-aggression that we did after the meta-analyses, that um, females might take longer to increase their absolute upper body strength compared to men. And we see that in in younger populations too. Like when I competed in powerlifting, the females could get a real rapid increase in their squat and deadlift strength, but bench press took a lot longer to actually um, accumulate increases in strength. So that might just reflect, the structural differences between men and women there also the uh, meta-analysis suggested that an increased number of reps per week was better to increase their relative and absolute lower body strength so as you said it might be that women recover better so they just need a little bit more volume in terms of lower body um, strength as well alternatively males there was some benefit from them increasing the intensity If they wanted to increase their strength and also longer training durations were more effective for muscle mass development, which again, makes sense. That muscle mass does take longer to develop than strength per se. So those longer durations, um, of programs were, were definitely important there as well. So some sex differences, but again, at the end of the day, the biggest bang for your buck, regardless of being male and female, get into the gym twice a week, maybe three times and progressively overload those muscles on a sort of a weekly monthly basis
0: yeah we've got to keep coming back to this fact that you know 70 to 90 percent of adults aren't even meeting the recommendation so how far into the wheat to the weeds for the average person do we really need to go given the barriers that already exist you you mentioned nutrition there at a, a kind of a high level when you spoke to to protein I know a number of people are interested in creatine and other supplements. Are there any supplements that you would say are well-supported by peer-reviewed literature for attenuating sarcopenia and would be worth someone's money?
1: That's a great question. Looking at different meta-analyses and even RCTs, often the difference between the resistance training and resistance training with the nutrition intervention um, is relatively small. And typically resistance training versus the dietary intervention is a substantial um, effect where resistance training is better than a nutritional increase alone. So again, for those individuals looking for that next 5 or 10% gain, definitely something to consider. And realistically, I think one of the challenges of nutrition literature often is that we give the same intervention to everyone regardless of what their baseline level of that dietary um, component is. So if we think of protein supplements or vitamin D, if you've got a proportion of your sample that are already meeting the dietary guidelines for protein or have sufficient levels of vitamin D, adding any extra to their um, regular um, sort of lifestyle is not probably going to give much effect. So. I think there still is um, a challenge there of what is that baseline sort of characteristic these individuals have to get that benefit from be it vitamin D, creatine, or additional protein. Ultimately, from the literature I've seen, diet is important, but less so than the progressive resistance training. But for those who aren't getting protein, that's the probably the biggest thing to, to meet, as well as are they in a calorie deficit? Because if they are in a calorie deficit, it's difficult to... Um, improve any of those outcomes some older adults might have some digestive issues that mean they might need additional protein and calories if they're not digesting well or different foods that are causing some of their indigestion so I think irritable bowel diseases become more common as we age as well so that can affect the foods that you can eat including things like dairy and so on that can provide important things like protein and calcium for osteoporosis and sarcopenia So it definitely can be important to get some dietary support from a registered dietitian to assist with that. Creatine does have some good evidence in younger people and emerging and older people as well. Potentially, that could be probably the next supplement to look into if you wish to. And it's still relatively inexpensive compared to most other supplements in in terms of the dosage you need per day. So outside of that, I'm not necessarily aware of strong evidence. Um, and even creatine would be sort of that final link in the chain. Although I have seen some potential benefits in other areas for creatine supplementation in older people, but I've got no understanding of how strong that evidence is at this point in time. But definitely an area we're going to see increased research in the next five to ten years for sure.
0: So just to kind of put this into perspective within the, the kind of landscape of sarcopenia incidents in australia let's just say today diets stayed the same so we have the average australian diet but we had the entire adult population adhering to the two or three times a week resistance training single leg balance work um, high ground force reaction style workout that you described earlier would most of the sarcopenia disappear?
1: So you're suggesting people in their twenties would start resistance training, and they would continue that throughout their adult life. Is that what you're suggesting?
0: Yeah, without really any, without any diet modification. So what I'm trying to, to to get at here really is, what's to blame for sarcopenia? Is it the sedentary lifestyles that we're living and the lack of resistance training we're doing, or is it the average diet? I would suggest much more of the activity component. So
1: if we had mandatory twice sessions per week of progressive resistance training from say the age of 18, those levels of strength, muscle mass and function for people once they hit their sixties would be so much higher than it is today. Alternatively, if we went back and changed society to more of our sort of hunter gatherer, sort of gardening, farming sort of um, roots again, we would see a much reduced level of sarcopenia if we still had good nutrition, because again, that level of muscle overload would be endemic to those activities that you see. Like even I visited um, Solomon Islands four years, five years ago. And yeah, just watching the people go out and get their food every day, Um, even walk down large um, hills, um, carrying buckets on their shoulders to get water. And then bringing those buckets uphill um on like a yoke uphill again the some of these people in their 50s still doing that every day 50s and 60s their strength their balance their coordination to do those activities their aerobic of fitness would the average caucasian person living here in australia uh, or anyone else in australia at that age would not even remotely think of doing those activities because they it would be
0: outside our capacity. So, yeah. And this is a little bit outside of your wheel- wheelhouse, so feel free not to comment or comment as briefly as you want. But uh, there are a number of people with metabolic conditions that are prescribed drugs like metformin or you know now increasingly Ozempic and other GLP-1 agonists. And there's a lot of discussion in in the literature and on twitter as to how some of these drugs may influence muscle mass muscle function do you do you have any particular views or comments that you would like to add when it comes to drugs like ozempic and metformin
1: that's probably a bit outside my area of expertise i suppose ultimately there are a host of drugs that can have profound negative effects on strength and function. Um, then now we spoke about hormones and, and so-and-so manipulating things. So I think, and if we look at weight loss, there's always been a host of drugs to assist with that. So drugs to now circumvent those issues are going to become more commonplace. How effective they are in isolation or then in conjunction of resistance or dietary interventions is going to be the question. Cause often even when we look at weight loss industry often, um, with the fine prints or the little asterisks, it also says in conjunction with an exercise program or a nutritional, uh, dietary intake of less than 1200 kilocalories a day or something. So interesting to see what happens. Um, but I would be reluctant to think we'll ever find a drug that, um, is as potent as progressive
0: resistance training um, in improving all these aspects simultaneously that point on weight loss brings us to another interesting question to think about here there are a number of people that want to lose weight earlier in this conversation you spoke about the importance of building up our savings account of muscle early in life to try and reduce our risk of developing sarcopenia if someone is wanting to lose weight is going to restrict energy what would some of the important things be for them to to think about so they're losing as little muscle as possible
1: that's a great point simon so those group of people particularly if they've got sarcopenia and some level of obesity are actually called sarcopenic obesity so that's a real challenging condition because you've got low muscle mass low strength and function But some of those functional challenges might be caused by the increased obesity that you have as well. So um, there was ads on TV probably 20 years ago, someone playing tennis with three, three kilogram bags of oranges strapped to their body. So carrying an extra nine kilos. And obviously that's really hard to do anything with. So for an older person who has less muscle, but increased fat, that's a really tough, challenging way to live because they've got less strength and function, increase additional body mass to carry around. So doing a sit to stand, walking, that additional mass, the body fat is making that much harder. So reducing that body fat while maintaining muscle mass and trying to increase strength is really important. So for those individuals, that exercise and diet component is crucial. And to a point, it is a challenge to do everything um, at the same time. But realistically, again, if they're doing a couple of sessions of resistance training each week, they'll maximize the maintenance of that muscle mass. They might still lose a little bit of muscle mass, but if you lose a kilo of muscle mass and like five or six kilos of fat at the same time, that would still be pretty much most people would call that a win situation if they can, and if they're doing two sessions a week resistance training, they will definitely increase strength as well, particularly for those body weight sort of activities. So they'll get a lot stronger doing a body weight, like a sit to stand, any sort of version of up they could do, they get much better at, um, etc. So for those overweight individuals who are sarcopenic, that is the real challenge because if they are dropping some body weights through a dietary caloric deficit, how much calories to drop each day is crucial and also maintaining that protein so they may have to definitely eat a lot stricter for that period of time some of the additional um, cakes biscuits sort of additional calories would have to be the things typically reduced and really concentrating on good sort of protein fruit vegetable and whole grain products if if they eat those sort of things so it can definitely be done but that dietary support from a dietitian would definitely be useful to give some guidelines initially um, and maybe a few touch points particularly if that weight loss was going to occur over say multiple months as well
0: can it be achieved with the body weight resistance bands kind of exercise snacking as the chosen form of resistance training or Do you think it really needs to be, you know, machine resistance training or free weights?
1: Progressive resistance and free weights would be best. But again, if that snacking is done frequently and those exercises are still challenging for that individual, so those reps and reserve would still be quite low in that 8 to 12 rep range, that would still be pretty fine. But again, there'd still need to be an additional um, increase in their regular physical activity daily movements. So again, more general walking. Uh, If they can't really walk because of injuries or the obesity, um, aquatic exercise would be a great option again. If they have the, the pool close by, just increasing those minutes of physical activity per day would be important in addition to that there may be increases in appetite as a consequence of these increased activities so again that dietary support from the dietician would be crucial there to sort of estimate the increased expenditure because of the physical activity and what that might then mean in adjusting the um, calories per day and relative proportions of fat carbs and protein.
0: Was there any myths about building muscle or reducing falls, fractures that we didn't kind of cover today that you wanted to kind of touch on or settle before we close this out?
1: Not really. Probably the only thing I would say is there was evidence years ago in some meta-analyses that resistance training on its own actually increased the risk of falls in residential aged care and there might still be aged care providers that have that sort of belief and that's true to a point because if you get these older individuals um strong in the lower body they're going to stand more instead of just being in a chair or a bed all day and any older adult particularly in aged care who's standing and walking is exposing themselves to more risk of a fall because it's easier to fall standing and walking than sitting in a chair Um, so they did find some of those risks however newer studies that have incorporated balance with the resistance training have basically reduced that effect so again i feel it's super crucial that we include balance with resistance training because if we increase these lower body strength in these older adults they'll also be a lot more confident in their physical abilities as well but if their balance is still in deficit we're actually perhaps setting themselves up for more likelihood of falls So it's analogous, I use an analogy of my students that it's like teaching an airline pilot how to fly a plane to take off but not teach them how to land.
0: I like that. To finish here, let's let's say you're in charge of Australia's exercise guidelines. What are the one or two things that you would amend or add that you think would have the biggest impact on reducing incidence of sarcopenia? Perhaps something about screening. So even if
1: it's the SARC-F which looks at um, that initial screen of possible sarcopenia, include that annually. But beyond that, particularly for those who've been found to perhaps be at risk of sarcopenia, that in essence the focus of their movement each week is a minimum of two resistance training sessions per week, initially supervised by exercise physiologist or a physiotherapist in in Australia or similar professionals in their country. In addition, some balance training in those sessions would be also optimal. And then beyond that, um, cardiovascular exercises or flexibility for those who would benefit from that in some way but at the end of the day resistance and balance training is the required and those other activities can be supplemented in in addition if time and um, willingness is there but that is a um, and not an or in relation to resistance and balance training so that is crucial
0: so just to clarify that your your view for the average Australian is that they would do better by leaning a little more into resistance training than spending that time doing more cardio.
1: Yeah, I think older adults in Australia, walking is pretty common. Um, Our environment is quite conducive to walking in many parts of Australia. Um, But yeah, if they were to perhaps Give up one or even two walks each week, replace that with resistance training, and then just add a little bit more snacking, general physical activity like we mentioned, um, park the car a bit further away, use the stairs, etc. Um, I think the cardiovascular benefits will be maintained, and they'll get those additional resistance and balance um, benefits at the same time.
0: That's a good take home message for everyone and and remember snacking means exercise snacking (laughs) not not oreos (laughs) yeah oreos won't give you much benefit outside of that little um
1: rush when it hits the the tongue and the blood system yeah
0: well thanks so much for being with us today justin i'm sure this will be an extremely clarifying episode for many of the listeners before i let you go where can we send people to stay up-to-date with all of the the research and other things that you're doing.
1: Uh, Yeah, good point. So I suppose um, um, like other academics and universities, I've got a profile at at my university, Bond University, so you can find my research profile there. Um, There's also something called ResearchGate, uh, which many academics use. Um, it's a place where most of our articles can be, um, included in their full capacity. So those journals that allow a full article to be written or a word, Microsoft word version. So you can actually read stuff that has journal embargoes, um, beyond there. Um, well, that's, I suppose my sort of, um, my personal bias, anything else that you're thinking, Simon?
0: No, I think that's, that's great. We'll put a a link to all of that into the show notes
1: yeah i'm on twitter as well um my profile there is dr strength um for life uh, for being the number um and again i follow a host of other really passionate um exercise um, individuals passionate for older adults and some of their stuff is amazing so that helps me keep on top of things that other groups are doing so yeah there's some really cool stuff on twitter if you want to follow me and then some of the other amazing individuals that I
0: follow as well beautiful we'll put all of that into the show notes thanks again I really enjoyed this there you have it friends I hope you enjoyed this episode if you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes be sure to hit that subscribe button on youtube and follow on apple or spotify finally thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode